0: little house on the prairie podcast i'm your host john hernandez all right just a heads up this episode it's a little heavy at times and i'm not one to give away spoilers so i'm just gonna leave it at that and on a completely different note welcome to december i've already received my end of the year recap from anchor in regards to this podcast and, well, it's just a nice reminder that I made my first publication on the first week of February. I spent all of January in pre-production, and, whew, and I will admit, I have gone back and listened to a few of those earlier episodes, and, well, there's been a lot of growth. I knew when I started this podcast that it would be a multi-year experience so thank you to everyone who has listened to an episode two three four all of them i greatly appreciate you taking me along on your day sharing some time together sharing this tv series that we all seem to really love oh except for the baseball episode and the raccoon episode didn't like either of those let's just say two seasons down and seven more to go When I'm working with some of my students and I tell them Little House has nine seasons, they seem rather surprised. And I will admit, I was as well. And as always, with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled Soldiers Return and debuted on March 24th, 1976 episode was written by B.W. Sanfure and directed by William F. Claxton. We begin with the sounds of a harmonica being played. We have a exterior wide angle shot and there is a wagon making its way across the scene. The wagon continues its way across the screen as what can best be described as a Leo Pen shot. It's really long. And who is the first interaction this man in the wagon comes across? Mary and Laura. They hear the harmonica and step out of the way as the wagon comes to a intersection. When the wagon comes to a complete stop, niceties are exchanged, and Mary compliments the music that was being played. And Laura, ignoring any sort of boundaries, heads directly over to the wagon and peers inside, I've never seen so many musical instruments. She then inquires if he can play all of them. And big sister Mary complaining how nosy her sister is and continues with how she's not supposed to ask those kind of questions. And I'm a little confused. Is Laura supposed to ask if the instruments can play themselves? The man in the wagon then requests instructions to the Whipple place. And Mary is thrilled, not only because this stranger is inquiring about Mrs. Whipple, but she also knows the correct answer to the question he asked. You know Mrs. Whipple? And he assures her that he does by calling her Amanda and then revealing that he is her son. And this is our introduction to Granville Whipple. Yes. Granville. Mary, in a somewhat fangirl moment, says, I've heard all about you. She then directs Granville to his mother's place. And as he is leaving, states, since you do work for my mother, we're most likely going to see one another again. And as his wagon starts to leave, Laura yells out, hey, my books are in the back. From there, we cut to the Whipple house and Granville is arriving home. And inside, Mrs. Whipple is in a chair and she hears the noise. And she puts down her work and she heads outside and, yep, it's a mother and child reunion. She brings him inside and actually brings him into his old room, it looks like. And Mrs. Whipple sets to task with getting Granville situated and a bed made. But Granville, he seems to be having a moment. The camera zooms in closely and we get a profile shot of him and we see some reactions on his face and we get a cut away to a bugle that is hanging from the headboard. We then cut back to Granville. He seems a little shaken. Mrs. Whipple returns to the room and notices her son's behavior. What's up? Granville admits to simply staring at the bugle and asks where it came from. Mrs. Whipple explains that she received it from a doctor a few years ago and has kept it around, awaiting for his return. However, very quickly, Mrs. Whipple states, if it brings back bad memories, we can get rid of it. FYI, the entire time this conversation has been taking place, Mrs. Whipple has been unpacking Gransville's bag and she has found something in the bottom. It's a small tin box, and inside she finds a metal and a small folded piece of paper. And she looks at her son and then inquires, has your leg been troubling you again? We are told his leg is fine, and that folded up piece of paper actually contains morphine, which we all know is 100 times stronger than that demon rum they have behind the counter at the mercantile. Granville assures his mother that he has been nine months clean. Mrs. Whipple continues on about how the medal was achieved by an action in the war as well as his leg being injured and actually I haven't really seen much of him walking. He's been in the wagon most of the time and that's when Mrs. Whipple confesses it was the leg injury and the pain that led to the prescription of the morphine she concludes with, and they warned us about the crave and how that craving can be dangerous. Gransville takes a hold of that small tin and assures his mother he only keeps enough around as a reminder of what it does to him. And following up, he says he doesn't want to bring any shame to her. And dear Mrs. Whipple confesses she was never ashamed. What she was was actually scared. She didn't know where he was, what was happening to him, but now that he's back, things are going to be all right. She is a proud and happy mother. We cut to evening at the Ingalls, and of course, Granville is the topic of conversation. We are informed he has been gone 12 years. That's three years shorter of Miss Amy Hearn's son, Andy, who holds the record at 15. Mary continues to inform us of Granville's biography and states that he earned his medal at the Battle of Shiloh. A silent Charles then confesses that that was a pretty brutal battle for both sides. There were a lot of losses. Mary takes a moment of silence to acknowledge this before continuing that Granville then went from Shiloh to Philadelphia to recover and concludes that He has been in orchestras and taught music while he was there. Told you, fangirl. At this moment, Laura steps out from putting Carrie to bed and proclaims that she wants to start practicing the fiddle. I'm big enough to do all these chores, so I'm old enough to start practicing. She'll start tomorrow. Mary then inquires to her dad. You ever fight in a war? Charles says no. Thankfully, he has not. And Laura gushes, If you did, I bet you have gotten plenty of medals. To this, Charles states, I think most men would trade any medal to forget the memory of war. Speaking of history, how is your homework? Laura, walking right into that, then proclaims that she has to get on to history. And of course, inquiring minds want to know, what is Laura studying in history? According to Laura... Same old thing. Dead people. Meanwhile, over at the Whipple place, Granville is dealing with some, I don't want to say craving issues, but it's some restless sleep for sure. He does get up and heads over to the dresser where the little tin with the metal and the morphine, oh, that makes sense, are stored. And whoo, Granville takes the metal out, puts the tin back, and shuffles back to bed, holding on to that metal. However, back in bed, his attention turns up to the bugle on the headboard. And that's when sounds of gunfire can be heard. And as those sounds continue, the camera zooms into the bell of the bugle. And we find ourselves in the midst of a civil war battle. P.S. That was a nice transition. And it's Granville, running zigzags through the forest, avoiding their artillery shells that is landing nearby. He takes a moment to rest up against a tree, but he is then immediately confronted by a haunted vision of a fellow soldier. As Granville starts to flee, this dead soldier follows in pursuit. The dream continues to intensify and eventually the visions go away, but not the sounds. And Granville is left in bed, surviving. We cut to the next day, where mother and son are heading into the mercantile. Mrs. Whipple has a very lovely purple dress and bouquet hat. She is the seamstress after all, so it does seem fitting she has such a lovely outfit. Harriet Olson is tending the store, and Mrs. Whipple is introducing her son and of course embarrassing him at the same time, but Embarrassing in a way a mother should, and this is when she mentions Granville has played in an orchestra. Harriet Olson, well, Walnut Grove could use a little culture, but the truth is Granville wants to post a notice up in the store. He is advertising for music lessons, 50 cents, instruments included. And upon reading the flyer, Harriet Olson immediately volunteers her own children to take lessons. She continues to gush, I'm the only one in the area with any formal music training. Well, voice actually. And keeping her word, we cut to Nellie Olson practicing the flute over at the Whipple's house. She is instructed to have one hour of practice every day. Nellie Olsen possibly rolling her eyes and confesses she won't need to practice that long. My mom said it won't take me as long as most. At this time, Mrs. Whipple with Mary come into the house and Mrs. Whipple sets Mary to task, which you can see because it's all happening right in front of us. And that's when Nellie Olson walks over and inquires, are you here for lessons too? Mary, with her head down, says no. She's here for the work. Following that, Mrs. Whipple praises her employees' skill set. Unimpressed, Nellie states. My mom says music is more important. Even Mr. Whipple says so. Quickly handing Nellie the sheet music and reminding her to practice for that one hour and opens the door for Nellie to leave. When she is gone, Granville then says maybe Mary should have lessons. Mary confesses, she probably wouldn't be that good, and how am I going to pay for them? And that's when Granville offers up music lessons in exchange for Mary to print out music sheets. Your sewing is so good, printing music shouldn't be that much more challenging. And well, Mary is all for this bargain, and they agree on this barter. Granville then stands up and heads over to that pile of instruments and pulls out a square case. He brings it to the table, unbuckles a section of it, and it is revealed to be a small keyboard. It's no second-hand white baby grand, but it does get Mary to give up that sewing and start her first music lesson. We cut to Plum Creek and Laura is having her first music lesson with the fiddle. And it's going as good as it can. Laura's response is, yuck. I will agree. It's not the most pleasant sound, but it's a first lesson. Looking at his half pint, Charles confesses, well, you can't get really good until you practice more. A barking jack announces Mary's return home with the piano case in hand. She gets everyone to head inside and that's when she reveals the toy piano inside and the exchange that she has made with Granville for music lessons. Picking up that sheet music, Charles is intrigued. You can read this? Mary, I sure can. And with all the printing I'm about to do, I'm going to pick it up even faster. Charles is impressed. He's going to teach you how to play. Laura then states, Pa, you know how to play. That's when Charles admits he can play. He just doesn't know how to read music. It looks like chicken tracks on a barbed wire fence to me. Speaking of chicken, Caroline reminds Mary about her own chores. And with the children outside, Charles is in good spirits about these lessons and wants to thank Granville. Great, you can do it on Sunday. Caroline informs him that she has run into Mrs. Whipple and Granville and is inviting them out to dinner. And with his fiddle in hand, Charles proclaims, Cool. We'll see if a city musician can keep up with a country fiddle. And as he plays a tune, there is a zoom in onto those strings, which then transitions us to a set of strings on a banjo with a nice zoom out. Again, very nice transition. And I have to confess, it 100% does look as though Granville Whipple can keep up with a country fiddle. The scene itself does seem to last A little while, but the music just gets faster and faster, so it gets more exciting, and eventually, DJ Ingles, at the fiddle, has to tap out. When the kids ask for an encore, Charles confesses, he's busted a string. Granville announces he might have a replacement in his wagon, and escorting Charles over there, the Ingles women and Mrs. Whipple head inside for some pie. Over at the wagon, as Granville is replacing the string, he informs Charles how many number of students he now has. He mentions how the town has grown from just a few farms, and the importance of being in a place with people you care about, and you hope they care about you back. Charles shares a smile and informs Granville he's right where he needs to be, and together the two of them start round two. Cut over to the mercantile. It's another day, and Harriet Olson is peering out into the storeroom and spots Granville. She then turns her attention to Nellie Olson on the flute and Willie Olson on the trombone. Practice your scales when I say so, and cue music! And Harriet Olson makes her entrance into the storeroom. Of course, Her talk is all about how the children are doing so well with their studies and how they love learning to play an instrument. It should be noted that the music in the background is full of sour notes coming out of these instruments. And that's when Willie Olsen announces, this wasn't my plan to play this dumb old horn. He then excuses himself. And that's when out of nowhere, we hear Granville. Upon hearing his name, Granville turns around and he sees a woman at the door, accompanied by a teenage boy. This is Vera Collins, Roy's wife. We're about to get some more backstory to all of this. We are introduced to the boy. His name is Roy Jr., and Vera Collins states, Mr. Whipple here, he was the hero of your father's regime. Roy Jr. comes forward and, well, he seems to be fanboying all over Granville. He knows all about him because of his father's letters. He even states that his own dad referred to Granville as the best bugle boy of Company C. Oh, and P.S. Roy Jr. never met his father. At this moment, it is suggested that they make dinner plans for a later date so Granville can stop by and perhaps share a story or two about Roy. Vera and Mrs. Whipple then head over to the yardage. Granville heads outside and Roy Jr. follows in pursuit. And he mentions how he would like to study the bugle with Granville. And Granville, he's not about that. But Roy Jr. is persistent. He wants to learn the bugle from Granville. And that's when we are also informed that Granville and Roy Sr. were always together. In fact, they were even referred to as twins by everybody. He even pushes the matter. You were there with him at the Battle of Shiloh. Not looking at Roy Jr., Granville states, "Um, I lost contact with him. It's very easy to get lost when you're surrounded. Roy Jr. continues, My pa said buglers are the bravest. That's why they're up at the front. Upon hearing this remark, Granville says, I suppose... He then tells Roy Jr. to relay a message to Mrs. Whipple that he's heading on home. We cut to a very restless night for Granville Whipple. He is perspiring. He is tossing. Sitting on up out of bed, showing a little leg, he takes down that bugle. He then stands up out of bed and turns his attention towards the box on the dresser. The camera zooms down to just his feet, and the bugle falls from his hands, and he shuffles out of scene. We cut to morning the next day, and Mrs. Whipple is heading home, and inside we find Granville using some sort of white powder you would find in the kitchen, baking soda, baking powder, flour, sugar, to refill that small packet of morphine. He returns the packet back onto the box on top of the dresser, At this time, Mrs. Whipple arrives and is just absolutely amazed about how quickly her orders are now arriving. What? Are you telling me all those turnpikes have been built? Walnut Grove, that's your tax dollars at work. Granville is busy getting himself dressed and is being a little short with already a very short Mrs. Whipple. She's reminding him that he has a music lesson with Nellie Olson in a very short time. And that's when there's a knock at the door. It's Mary with that sheet music. She hands them to Granville without really looking over them. But Mary, being the student and employee that she is, does ask if he can double check the work to make sure it is all right. And it's less of a double look and more of a glance before he announces that it's all wrong, thank you for wasting my paper and your time. And as Mary is trying to apologize and offers to correct the work, Granville is just getting more and more heated. Until finally, he calls off the deal and just storms out of the house. We cut to the mercantile, and Mr. Olson is helping Mrs. Foster with a recently delivered package. It's 75 cents, which that's quite a bit on the prairie. (laughs) And when she leaves, he heads over to Granville, who flat out inquires about the morphine in the house. There is none. Going for his second option, Granville inquires, is there any laudanum? Mr. Olsen says, we haven't had any hard opiates or morphine in over a year. You're going to have to go see Doc Baker for those things. We're also told that it was Doc Baker who encouraged the Olsons to remove those items from their store altogether. People were bound to hurt themselves on those things. Granville then inquires about the location of the doctor's office and leaves. And en route to the doctor's office, Roy Jr. has been waiting outside with a bugle in hand for Granville. He still wants those lessons, and actually, that bugle was his father's. And, well, Granville, in his current state, he takes it too far. He places his hands on Roy Jr. and shakes him and is getting directly in his face. I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. Upon finishing that comment, Granville looks into Roy Jr.'s eyes and immediately pulls the boy in cloaks for an embrace and begins to apologize profusely. Granville then releases a very shaken Roy Jr. who backs up, grabs his father's bugle, which he had dropped and turns to run away. From there, we find ourselves inside Doc Baker's office and he is inspecting the leg, and notices that there's no scarring and inquires if there really is any pain. Granville assures him that he is and does succeed in getting a prescription, but not for morphine. Doc Baker calls out Granville for earlier saying that he has not been on morphine for the last nine months. I've seen enough dependency on drugs to read the signs. In a very encouraging manner, he guarantees that he will help Granville to work through this withdrawal. And well, Granville is not happy about this. He calls out Doc Baker for his lack of care. You're the ones who gave it to us, and now you refuse to help us? Doc Baker confesses there was not a lot of study on the effects of morphine until after the fact. A very agitated, Granville gets up, refuses Doc Baker's help, and says he'll take care of it himself and leaves. We cut to Mary and I believe it's later that same day, and who's down by the pond. And I have to confess, it does not look like a pond we've been to already. Charles comes into scene and notices Mary's belongings, minus the toy piano. I left it at Miss Whipple's. I don't want to play anymore, and I don't want to talk about it. As Charles is getting ready to leave, Mary then inquires, what do you do when you like someone? And they do not like you at all. Charles has a seat and Mary unloads about what happened earlier that day. In coming to Granville's defense, Charles states, we all have our bad days and it doesn't mean anything. And Granville, well, he's been through a lot. He tells her to be patient with him which then leads to their talk being concluded and Mary smiling and them heading off to supper. And we cut to late night and we have a breaking and entering into the doctor's office. Not surprised, however, Granville is in the doctor's office and he takes the entire supply of morphine that was there. We immediately cut to the Whipple house and he is passed out in bed, with that morphine on the nightstand. And we are brought back to Granville's visions, memories of the Battle of Shiloh. He's crawling out from a pile of leaves underneath a log, and looking around, he comes across, and I'm just going to assume, this is Roy Collins. This Roy Collins is completely different than the previous one. We find him impaled on a log, but he's not dead. He looks up and notices Gransville and reaches his arm out for him. Roy manages to get a hold of Granville's collar, but Granville can only think of doing one thing. He gets up and he leaves his friend. He then wakes up. This man, he's got some demons. And at some point, he must have fallen back to sleep because it's the next morning and Mrs. Whipple is bringing in a cup of coffee. And that's when she notices the pile of morphine. And yes, she absolutely takes it. And she should just head straight outside and dump that stuff in the outhouse. Instead, she goes over and is ready to toss it into the fire. And that's when we hear Granville begging her to stop. He then heads over and takes the supply. Once again, Mrs. Whipple asks, Is it your leg? And instead of answering the question, Granville announces, I have to go. And Mrs. Whipple starts to plead, Tell me, why do you have to leave? And Granville just shrugs and says, I just have to go. One hundred percent not satisfied, Mrs. Whipple continues, I'm going to lose my son again. Again? And you won't even tell me the reason why? And that's when Granville taps the little tin box that is holding the morphine. It's this, Mrs. Whipple. Ah, yes. The white powder. She then gets up and heads over to the fireplace and picks up Granville's medal. You had the courage to win this. And if you stay here, I will help you through this. And that's when we have... Granville's confession. I didn't earn this. I'm not a hero. I only earned it because I was the only one left alive. And I'm only alive because I ran and hid until it was all over. I'm not a hero. I'm a coward. He also then states this action is punishable by death. The whole second dream sequence, that's not a dream. That's what really happened. To Granville, he left his friend, and he's overcome with shame and grief. Mrs. Whipple states the only way to overcome shame is to face it. There's no shame in the truth, and I don't know about you, I'm one hundred percent having Game of Thrones flashbacks every time they say the word shame. Regardless, Mrs. Whipple continues to plead to her son how she wants her son whole once again. And Granville actually agrees. He then stands up and says, I have to go tell Roy Jr. everything. And he is slowly edging his way towards the door. And Mrs. Whipple gets up and begs, please let me go with you. And he says, no, we know what's going to happen. Before he steps outside, he tells his mom he loves her, kisses her on the cheek, and heads outside. We cut to Doc Baker arriving at the office and noticing, of course, the broken door. Charles, being at the right place, as always at the right time, is called over to look at the door, and he admits that he can fix this lock very easily but Doc Baker has his own suspicions and heads to the back office, and he is correct. The morphine supply is gone. He then inquires if Charles is familiar with Granville and Mrs. Whipple, and does ask if he will accompany him over there. And over at the Whipple's place, Mrs. Whipple confesses Granville had gone to the Collins house, but he was supposed to be back in a little while. And she's been waiting here a few hours longer than she should have. Charles announces he will head on over to the Collins, but Mrs. Whipple does want to tag along. And en route, they come across Granville's horse, but Granville's nowhere to be found. He's not even responding to his name. That's when Charles gets out of the wagon and inspecting the surrounding area he does notice something suspicious under some leaves and under a log. And upon closer inspection, all I have to say is, wow. Charles has found Granville under those leaves, his head sticking out, his hand exposed, clutching on to those packets of morphine. Granville has succumbed to his addiction. I have to say, this is even more intense when Jack Peters exploded himself. From there, we cut to a grave site. I'm not sure if it's the cemetery that's located next to the school slash church. Reverend Alden is concluding his eulogy and concludes that he hopes Granville has concluded his search for peace. And give him your love, and warm embrace he finishes up by saying as the bugler asks this soldier has come home roy jr then steps forward and this boy does not seem to have ever needed lessons in the first place just stories about his dad i have to confess I don't know how many times I had to re-record the name Granville because I kept saying Grainsville. And yes, it's very obvious in the first 10 minutes. Now that we're close to the end of season two, I, I have to wonder where people get this impression that this TV series is nothing but good values and warm feelings. Just some random thoughts that come from my head. We've had a plague. Dealt with themes of alcoholism, child abuse, now drug addiction, mental health issues, watching a bag of puppies get tossed into a pond. And these are just some of the images slash memories that popped in my head without reviewing my notes. However, I just have to continue to say this show is awesome. And just in case anyone was wondering, I did go ahead and do the math. We are in the year of 1876, because the centennial happened just last episode. And if you minus the 12 years that Gransville Whipple has been gone, you would end up in the year 1864, which is two years after the Battle of Shiloh. And moving forward in time in the Prairieverse, let's get to reviewing and rating this episode. All right, so thinking back on the first season and everything up to this point, this episode is like our first episode that doesn't end on a happy note. I'm looking through my spreadsheet that's tracking down the ratings I have for each episode, and yeah, looking down, there are definitely moments where Everything seems lost, but again, everything is completed in that 48 minutes. Except here, we end with a funeral of a character who was dealing with a lot of issues. Mrs. Whipple loses her son and Roy Jr. loses any opportunity to hear any stories about his father. If you want to try to put a positive spin on that, go right ahead be my guest, but I'm going to leave this one as is. And Granville Whipple, he's a pretty tragic character. This episode does a great job with keeping our attention on him. It seems each scene that he's in, we find out something more and more about him. In the first five minutes, we find out he's nine months sober from a morphine addiction. Before that, we're told he's a soldier And as we move through the episode, we find out what happened to him as a soldier and how it's affected him. Oh, and like I said, the transition into that first dream sequence, awesome. But how awesome was it to even have that dream sequence to help explain his character even more? And not only that, we saw his transformation from being a man who's trying to come to terms with things to unfortunately succumbing to his addiction and the actions that fell from that, we see how his character changes. And that's what I like. Again, I've referenced this only because back in season one during survival and just a few episodes ago in The Long Road Home, we had two men overcome their own racial prejudice. But it all happened in the span of a quick edit. So having pretty much most of this episode or the entire episode about Granville Whipple it was a nice character piece and like I said earlier this episode had a lot of really heavy themes you know the effects of war drug addiction separation mother and son relationships remorse and guilt and again the things I've just listed that's all in the first 10 minutes so in all of this you might be asking how does John find a little house moment in this episode? And it's easy. It's the musical interlude. You know, the one between the city musician and the country fiddle. It's at this time, Granville seems to really be in the moment. He's not thinking about his leg. He's not thinking about his past. He's not thinking about the morphine. He's just there with friends playing music. It reminded me a lot of when I used to go home in the summer and visit with my family. And some evenings, my dad would bring out his guitar And while he played, you just kind of lost track of what was going on and you enjoyed the moment. And well, in this episode, everything that has happened up to that moment and everything we should prepare ourselves that happens after this moment, this is a nice break. And with that, let's finally get to rating this episode. As you might have picked up, I did like this episode quite a bit. Again, Granville Whipple, tragic character in an episode of Little House that does not have a happy ending. Oh, and we got to see a lot more Mrs. Whipple. Richard Mulligan, who played Granville, he did awesome in this episode. Season two has introduced us to the dream sequence. And again, in this episode, great use of those. And well, like I said, William F. Claxton has up his game on some of his transitions here. And after that, it's just essentially me getting a little more nitpicky about stuff. You know, like the math. I don't know. I think the use of the Olsen children didn't really help. Nellie's in one scene to, of course, taught Mary that she can't afford music lessons. And in their next scene, Nellie and Willie are poorly practicing their music. And Willie complains that this is all just a rouge. Other than to reinforce the kind of attitudes these children have, I really don't understand them being in this episode. Must have been a contract thing. Let's just go ahead and say that I'm going to give this episode, Soldiers Return, a 4.75 bonnet. A tragic story, yes, and also a well-told one. And those are some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. And of course, I wouldn't mind hearing any of your thoughts or feelings about this episode or any previous episode. Feel free to reach out to me at the Gmail and Instagram account from Plum Creek with love. Thank you to everyone who has hit their like, following, subscribe button on your platform of choice. And yes, next week is the final episode of season two. So so we'll have a nice season and celebration. So expect a little bit longer podcast next time. And so we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. And until next time, take care.